It is so good to be with you this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it up to Second Samuel. Sorry, Second Samuel, chapter one. As you're finding this passage, so we're looking at the the second part of Second Samuel, chapter one. I don't know if any of you uh, have access to Peacock, but that's where the uh, one of the playoff games was located, the only place where you could find it last night, and uh, a pastor out of East Texas sent out a tweet that I thought was so applicable because I was also just interested in hearing and seeing visually what it looked like in Kansas City, negative 20 windshield, and to see all the fans still filling that stadium in such severe weather because of their love for the team And so he was just stirring up the church, brothers and sisters, I hope that you will show up tomorrow for church as we look at all these fans showing up for the thing that they love. And as I was reading that, I began also to be convicted and praying for our church body and brothers and sisters, it's a joy to look out and see you here on the Lord's Day when it is very cold outside. We're thankful to be here. So 2 Samuel chapter 1, David's lament, verses 17 through 27. Hear the word of the Lord. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher, he said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa. Let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. Hear the word of the Lord. I had a seminary professor who, in the course of this particular class I was taking, during this semester, there happened to be quite a few grievous sins, scandal within the evangelical church, within a particular denomination, and there were several times 
as we would gather as students, where he would say in a very loud voice, as these topics were coming about, tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. And honestly, the first couple times he said it, I did not have a good frame of reference like why is he quoting this obscure passage in the Old Testament? But it begins hopefully to make more sense of what he was saying when we look at the context of this particular passage. It makes sense that David is the one writing this, having this written, this lament. He is burdened for the Lord's namesake. David mourns this disgrace with a specific concern for the glory of the Lord in the midst of the nations who are observing what has transpired for the people of God, the people of Israel. There could be no doubt that the news of Saul's death, defeat on Mount Gilboa, would be celebrated in the Philistine cities. Yet David expresses the wish that this result could somehow be avoided, reminding his hearers that these are uncircumcised pagans, people who were enemies to Israel and to God, he is provoked that these Philistines would rejoice over the slaying of Israel's king. Even worse is the idea, if you remember back in 1 Samuel, we were introduced to the Philistines' false god, namely Dagon, and the episode where they take the Ark of the Covenant into their land and what happens when they place it within the temple of Dagon, Day after day, they find their idol down, in the, down, face down before the Ark of the Covenant. The next day, they come in, the priests of the Philistines, and they find Dagon with his head decapitated and his arms or his hands also cut off and again laying before the one true God, the representation, the Ark of the Covenant. David, thinking about what has transpired in the past and grieving that now they're exulting in the defeat of Israel and the death of the king. David reminds the Israelites that their defeat at, at Mount Gilboa is both a national and a religious disgrace. Now, for us, on a national level, where we could probably enter into this, some of us in this room will be too young, but the events that transpired on 9-11... We're now many years past, but going back, rewinding, and what happened where videos were being released of men, women, and children dancing in the streets, celebrating in the Middle East of what had transpired on our home front, the death of thousands and one horrific morning, that kind of helps us begin to enter into this lament being written for the people of God to read, to remember to mourn, and to grieve. And there is a, a tone here that we see for the, the military, the, the, the soldiers of Israel to, to hear and to remember and to mount up, so to speak, what has just transpired in this awful defeat and the slaying of our king. David, in a sense, is stirring up the men of Israel to not 
ever forget this. Keep this taste in your mouth as we will need to go forth and reconcile what has been done to us with the help of the Lord. So a national and religious disgrace. As I've been looking at this passage, David's lament for Saul and for Jonathan, I, I want to spend just a moment thinking about how we, as the, the readers, can learn from lament. It allows us to hear lessons God intends to teach his people through painful experiences, much heartache, much loss. C.S. Lewis famously said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. There are times where difficult trials of various kinds are used by God to arouse our deaf ears. We can hear the Lord speaking during sorrow like this. Here's a question. Are you willing to listen? Suffering at every level is an opportunity to, to learn. It's, whether it's personal or communal, national or even global. We see in this first chapter, as if you were with us last Lord's Day and looking at our passage this morning, we, we see kind of the spectrum of grief being put on display, a range of, of expression that, that we see in David's life. First, in our passage last week in verse 11, David hears the news that Saul and Jonathan are now dead. We see him grieving emotionally. If you recall, as soon as they heard from the Amalekites the horrific news, what did they do? They took hold of their clothes and they tore them. There was great emotional grieving that was happening. Different people express emotional grief in different ways. And as we walk alongside people who go through horrific experiences in this life, deep sorrow, there is the, the freedom, the willingness to say, that grief, that is okay, that expression. What we also see through David in this chapter that is helpful for us is this intellectual expression written out in a lament. Words are given to help understand the pain and the sorrow. So not only is this good for David's own soul, but this is instructive for the people of God to see this lament laid out and words given to, to those emotions that are deep and, and dark at times. And so there is a thoughtfulness to this lament that David, inspired by the Spirit of God, gives careful selection of crafting expressions in word and more of a poetic form that helps enter into the grief and the anguish that the people of Israel are experiencing, that David himself is experiencing. So as we look at these verses, what we also see are images given by 
David's words that, that kind of help understand what's going on that makes this lament so real and rich. The death of Saul and Jonathan. The mighty have fallen is a, re- a repeated phrase throughout this lament. We see the wicked rejoicing, the land memorialized in despair. David sees the shame that results from sin under the hand of God's judgment. Why had Israel fallen and suffered so greatly? Because of the sin against the Lord, under Saul's leadership as king. Likewise today, I want us to think about this. First, the descriptions, the the mighty have fallen, the wicked are rejoicing, the land is, is, is shown that there are, there are shields dirty now that were once oiled, ready for battle. They're just thrown throughout the land. It shows just the, 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 the depth of, of heartache in this moment. And, it, and as we think about today and sin, sin exhibits itself in the shameful, shameful disgrace of those who have embraced it. So I want to read a Proverbs to you. Proverbs 14.34 points out righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So we're thinking more on the national front, the people of Israel and what they're experiencing. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So it is for all Our power and might, now I'm bringing it home in America, for all of our power and might, America is disgraced by a corrupt government rewarding what is evil and what seems to be punishing what is good. We look at our land and we see astronomical debt. We see a woke mob that desires all should bow the knee to their sexual revolution and gender dysphoria. We see shattered institutions, the nuclear family decimated as a result. We see drug epidemics. We see broken cities. Like the site on Mount Gilboa, which was and remains largely a barren hill, the site of our disgrace, this is where it's applicable to us, the site of our disgrace should lead us to humble ourselves in repentance before God and seek his mercy on a national scale. I wonder if you think about that. So David writing this lament is is painting a picture of the reality of what has happened because of the sin of their leader. This is the judgment of God upon his people. Now, what I'm not saying is America is the people of God. But what I am saying is we are placed to live in this nation. This is our nation that God has placed us in for such a time as this. This is where we are as citizens. And we observe what's happening. And Proverbs 14 rings true. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. We should heed the word the words of the Apostle Paul, and and pray for our leaders. It it actually matters. God and his sovereignty, the way he has ordained life to unfold before us, 
he actually invites his people into exercising prayer and using those means to accomplish his purposes. It actually matters how we engage in pleading for the Lord to do a work of reformation even within our land. May we not sit back stagnant, but actually see even in this lament how it pushes God's people to a response. Not only is it expressing the heartache in that they may be experiencing, giving voice to, to the sorrow, but, but actually helping them see both the effects of sin and, and how, how to begin to respond. Verses 23 and 24, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. Now, as I began just kind of reading over the passage again and again to kind of uh, grab hold of it, ask the Lord to help me understand, entering into to the study of the passage, it looks kind of at face value like this could come across as very insincere. It seems that David is saying nothing but positive and really good things about Saul. Maybe painting a picture that if this was looked at as like a eulogy for a funeral, this would almost be like the preacher kind of preaching this person who has died before us into heaven, so to speak, by, by kind of cr- painting a picture that if those are who are sitting in the congregation listening go, well, that's not necessarily all that I experienced from this individual. Sure, there were many things that happened in Saul's life that that were not positive, that were not God-honoring. And David knew more than most because he experienced the wrath of Saul against him, pursuing him, wanting him to actually be put to death. But, but what David's doing here, I don't think that it's creating kind of a false narrative and preaching Saul into heaven, exaggerating the, the positives and overlooking all the negatives. I don't think that's what's going on here. God chose Saul for the office of king over his people. And yes, David did experience many difficulties and hardships under the hand of, let us not forget, his father-in-law. Many ups and many, many downs. But I, I want us to think about relationships in life. There are many, many experiences that you may have with an individual, many highs, possibly many lows. And as you look over the course of that relationship, David is able to witness with his relationship with Saul, of course, the the good, the bad, and the ugly. But he took part in, in the glory of Saul's rule, blessed by God for a season in defeating many of Israel's enemies. You have to understand, if you're working through the book of Judges, and before the people of Israel had a king, oh man, there were many, many years of oppression living under the hand of unjust rulers. And so for, for, for David to have seasons of life under King Saul, 
the king of Israel, and, and helping lead towards victory in battle many, many times. Now experiencing what life was like as a sovereign nation blessed by God, there were, there were reasons for him to articulate this lament in such a, a positive light, uh, lifting high the, the things, the, the, the qualities of Saul's reign, his, commu- his relationship with his son that were actually good. That's why we see in verse 24, the clothing of women in luxury and gold on their apparel. This was also testifying to the prosperity that came from Saul's rule as king. There actually was, there was many, there were, sorry, there were many good things that God had blessed during the reign of Saul. Also for a moment, Jonathan and Saul were, were told, it's described, had mutual fidelity. This, this family dynasty, David emphasizes, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. David was well aware, of course, that the father and son had been estranged while Saul's on his crazy rampage of persecution of David because Jonathan, his son, was, had covenanted with David and, and Jonathan had remained loyal to David and yet at the same time never straying from his father's side all the way to the bitter end. And so David in this lament was able to lift high those, those qualities that actually were apparent and real in in Saul's rulership, in his kingship. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. David laments over Israel's loss. And then when we get to verse 25, 26, and 27, there's a turn and his lament turns very personal. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. In order for us to begin to understand the love that David had for Jonathan, we actually need to go back just a bit into 1 Samuel. I want to take us back to the end of chapter 17 and the beginning of chapter 18. This is where David had just slayed the giant. He was, he was seen before the people, this young David slaying Goliath, the giant slayer. He's, he's, he's now coming before the king. And at this point, Saul is asking, who is this young man? And he tells him he's the son of Jesse. And he, he comes now before the king and is being recognized for what he had just accomplished, where the people... The soldiers of Israel were all afraid. David, living by faith, trusting in God, walks out on the battlefield, and we're familiar with the story. He slays the giant. Now in, verse, in chapter 18, we see Jonathan's response. We can't gloss over this. Jonathan, the son of the king, was the one who was to be the next king. He was next in line, heir to the throne. And this is how chapter 18 unfolds. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, 
The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. That's David going back to his father's house. And then here, so not only were things happening inside of Jonathan and this knitting together, but there was actually an expression of love towards David. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. That expression in our time, it's hard to to grasp the, the magnitude of what was actually happening from from Jonathan to to David, the one who was the elder, the one who was next in line, and what he was displaying before all to see that he had been knitted with David and David was the one, the one who he would be willing to follow. In short, while David had gained, had much to gain, in this situation, Jonathan had much to lose. Jonathan's attitude toward David was really completely different than we might expect. Instead of resenting this young man who's getting all the glory, he loved him as his own soul. Instead of standing indifferent from the young giant slayer, his soul was knit to the soul of David. A little bit later in 1 Samuel, Jonathan was totally devoted to David becoming king of Israel. This is 1 Samuel chapter 23. No, nowhere can one find a better summary of, of Jonathan's attitude than when he encouraged David in Horesh. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. I will be second. That epitomized Jonathan's whole approach to his life in the kingdom. And In this lament, David knows he has lost the greatest earthly relationship he had ever known. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Now, for some of us, we hear those words, and it causes us to question what exactly is being communicated here. For David, this was the most cherished relationship that he had ever known. For us, probably sitting here today, we would say the the relationship between a husband and a wife should be characterized or explained to someone else as that most cherished relationship that one could ever know. How do you make sense of such a relationship? Well, we don't have to look very far in the 21st century for people to say, we know exactly what is being described here. This perfectly describes an erotic homosexual relationship between Jonathan and David. And that is the view, unfortunately, of many liberal scholars. If you you read Um, commentaries on 2 Samuel, 1 Samuel, you will see liberal commentators jump to that conclusion quickly and unfortunately so very often. 
And I would just submit to you to say, even begin to go down the road of pointing towards a homosexual relationship says a lot more about where we are than what the text actually says. Just to help us a little bit here. Homosexuality was clearly forbidden in the law of God. Clearly. And as we look at 1 Samuel unfold and now into 2 Samuel, when sins that go against God's commands and his law are committed, in particular by the leaders of his people, we see very clearly that those sins are called out, made known that this is against the will of the Lord and shall not happen. We see nothing of that in the description of, of Jonathan's relationship to David. In, in Saul's life, clearly when he steps out of bounds, disobeying the commands of God, it is made known. And what we will see in coming chapters, when David commits sexual sin with Bathsheba, that is made known because it is against God's law. But here, there is, there is none of that. And so our minds should not even begin to go down that road, even if you're having a hard time grasping how this relationship could be so, so profound, could, to lead David to say that it surpasses the love of women, our, our relationship with one another. Totally misconstruing covenant relationship in the ancient world. We made note of this when we were in 1 Samuel, but there is a familial love in the expression one in spirit or knitted together. This is actually the same word that is used to describe Jacob's relationship with his son, Benjamin, his favorite son. Jacob's life, we are told, was closely bound, closely bound up or knitted together with that boy's life. Same kind of description, David with Jonathan, knitted together, bound together, and that is a familial kinship language, covenant language that we see in the Old Testament. In an amazing display of God's sovereign will, Jonathan, the heir to the throne, bestows upon David he, as the older brother, status where David is grafted into Saul's royal line. One commentator that actually does a very good job, his name's Robert Cagnan, he says this, and I want you to hear this. Jonathan's repeated display of non-sexual kindness to David at a time when Jonathan was in a position of power selflessly risking his own life and certainly his own kingdom, this display of kindness surpassed anything David had ever known in a committed relationship with a woman. When David is penning this lament, he is not a single man. Just to kind of add more to this pushing away and against any thought that this was some kind of homosexual relationship. David, in fact, was a man who struggled with too many women. He loved women. He loved too many women, and it got him into a lot of trouble. It's the furthest thing from the case of him having that type of relationship 
with Jonathan. So may we see the depth of loss between Jonathan and David being something that actually is written in a lament for the people of Israel. David's own heart being exposed and expressed to God's people. Therefore, the intensity of David's grief is no mystery. Matthew Henry writes, the more we love, the more we grieve. Sorrow will be hardest where love is deepest. How often God's people are called, are called upon to learn this type of experience. I think about this, how hard it will be for couples, and some we've seen actually even in this congregation, who really love and enjoy each other, who have been married for maybe 40 or 50 plus years, and one is taken away. What will it be like if my wife were taken from me? It's good for us to start thinking about what led to this type of distress and sorrow for David. Greater love, greater grief. Shouldn't we also soberly begin to prepare ourselves? How can we endure such sorrow unless we are convinced that underneath it all stands a love from which we can actually never be separated. What's interesting is you think as years unfold, David's son would write a proverb, Proverb 18, Proverbs 18, where he would pin these words, that there is a friend that is closer than a brother. And what's beautiful, although our passage this morning does not clearly show that we're pushing towards God, pushing towards the hope of his son to come, if we just begin to kind of think about this idea of a friend that is closer than a brother, those who have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, I actually think can have a better understanding of this type of uniqueness that David experienced with Jonathan. I heard that C.T. Studd, who was a British missionary, he actually entered into the mission field, uh, the land of China with Hudson Taylor. The C in his name stood for Charlie. He gave his wife a poem, and he encouraged her to read it every morning in her, per in her personal devotions. See, he knew that she loved him greatly, but he knew that she would not always have him with her. He knew that it was vital that she learn to love Jesus more than she loved Charlie. So each day, he encouraged her to, to recite this, Dear Lord Jesus, you are to me dearer than Charlie ever could be. You, Lord Jesus, are dearer to me than Charlie ever could be. So I'm, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, you mean greater than my love for my wife when I met her when she was 18 on the campus of Abilene Christian University? And the answer is yes. There is a love, there is a friendship that is closer than a brother. And so in 
in a, in a way that we would call um, something that is uh, a shadow and later we see the substance, I, I want to encourage you as you maybe are dumbfounded to understand this relationship between David and Jonathan. When you are adopted into God's family by union with Christ, there actually is a knitting together of hearts that he accomplishes on our behalf, bringing us to himself. And we're reminded from the Lord Jesus in John 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. That is a friendship that those outside of Christ may be scratching your head and understanding how it is that you're saying, I experienced this kind of intimacy and love with my bride for 40, 50 plus years, Lord willing, and yet I can lose her and still experience, be convinced that underneath it all, all the loss, all the sorrow, stands a love from which I can never be separated? And the answer is, in Christ, yes. So I actually think it's a good thing if you're going, I've never, in, in earthly relationships, could say I even come close to what David's describing between him and Jonathan. That there actually is hope now, right now, for you to experience a friend that is closer than a brother. It is found in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. I was thinking, how do I land the plane in this sermon? How do I bring this lament to a conclusion? I, I want to draw us back to what is healthy and right and good for the people of God when you experience sorrow and trials of various kind to lament. This is, this is a good thing for us to see in God's word and say this actually needs to be a part of our life as believers. David gave voice and expressed sorrow for the people of Israel. The way I want to close is just by encouraging you that silence in your life before God can be a soul killer. Lamenting is good and right when it is instructed by God's word. I wonder how many of us stop speaking to God about our pain, disappointed maybe by unanswered prayers or frustrated by out-of-control circumstances, some choose to just stop talking to God. Silent despair is not the answer. Many people feel uncomfortable and frightened to cry aloud to God. For some, it's too raw, it's too honest, it's too open, it's too risky. And I just want you to know that giving God the silent treatment you may think, okay, as long as I'm not crying out to him, we've, we're okay. We've got peace between us. And we would just describe that as peace faking. 
So silence and withholding the engagement to a God that's saying, come to me in your hurt and your sorrow. You may think, I'm good, he's good, there's peace amongst us because I'm not crying out loud and just letting it all out before him. And I would just submit to you that that's actually peace faking. Biblical peacemaking is actually an engagement and a willingness to be open and honest before our creator. Brothers and sisters, he can handle everything that you can bring to him. I would also say that this silence is actually a manifestation of unbelief. People stop praying when despair leads them to believe that God no longer cares. He doesn't hear, so what's the point? Nothing's ever going to change in my life. However, lament, biblical lament, directs our emotions by prayerfully vocalizing our hurt, our questions, and even our doubt. So this is an encouragement to move out of silence and see this lament as it actually giving voice to you to turn to God while you're in pain, to learn to lament. In order to learn to lament, there actually needs to be a resolve to talk, to express, to keep praying, to plead with the Lord. The book of Lamentations is so helpful in helping the people of God, instructing the people of God on how to plead, to voice our, our hurts, our struggles to the Lord. So the author of Lamentations called the people to do just that in Lamentations chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. I want you to hear these words. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the night watches, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. We are to pray our struggles. We are to pray our questions. And as we do, prayer and the work of the Holy Spirit on us turns us, begins to turn us around. Lament leads us through personal sorrow and difficult questions. Actually, when I said turns us around, it leads us into truth that anchors our soul. And as you're moving through biblical lament, you hear a passage like Psalm 130, and this is where I want to close, verses 7 and 8. This is where we are led as God's people. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let us pray. Father, we come to you now as your people, thankful for this portion of your scriptures, praying that the Holy Spirit would apl apply what we have learned and looked at and thought about today to our hearts and to our minds.
Father, there is much here for us to, to think hard about, to reflect on. And we need your help in order to respond appropriately as your people. When there is sin present in our own lives, in our families' lives, in our church, in our nation, how we respond as your people. Learning how to grieve, learning how to lament. We thank you for instruction. And Father, in the midst of this lament, thankful for this description of David's love for Jonathan that is extraordinary, that is hard for us to even imagine, but yet in Christ we begin to understand what a friendship looks like that is closer than a brother. And to know that in the midst of whatever trial, whatever heartache, whatever sorrow, whatever grief, we are not alone. We are being upheld by your right hand. Father, all of this, we pray you would help apply to our lives, help us to understand, and help us to respond in praise and worship, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.